The talk tonight is about the essence of love and wisdom. The last retreat that I taught um, was in California, and there was a woman who uh, admitted in her first group interview that she had only come to the retreat because she had to do a hundred hours of meditation to graduate from massage school. (laughs) And so she figured a retreat would be the quickest way uh, to get those a hundred hours. So I asked her teasingly if she was counting her sleeping time as part of those hours, um, and she said yes. (laughs) But in spite of herself, at this first group interview, uh, she also admitted that she thought that the practice was a good idea. And when she said that, the whole group burst out laughing. Because you know when you first had that intimation, about how great an idea meditation is. (laughs) And then there's that sort of crash when you realize how much work it's going to take, you know. know, So she was at that real innocent place of, this is a great idea. (laughs) But then, you know, you see that you have to face this habit of disconnection and disconnection and then that return to connect over and over. One way that we can see the practice that we're doing here, this retreat, the loving-kindness practice, is in relationship to a whole package that the Buddha taught, which is the four Brahma-viharas. And uh, Susan referred to this last night, But I wanted to uh, speak to this a little more. So when we learn the loving-kindness practice, if we don't realize that uh, all four uh, practices were taught as a balance, and also to keep in mind that they're not in a vacuum in terms of wisdom, uh, that, that there's a real reciprocal relationship between love and wisdom, and wisdom and love. Love, wisdom. It's like they, they feed each other, they purify each other. Another way you could think of that is that uh, love is the container for wisdom. It's that which holds us. And it's like a f- the fabric of the universe. And I think of, of love as what gives us composure or dignity in the face of, you know, the range of joy and sorrow in this world. So the first uh, divine home that the Buddha taught is loving-kindness. And remember that it's understanding that makes pure love possible. It's understanding or wisdom that purifies love. And it's the same with all uh, four Brahma-viharas. It's understanding that purifies compassion. This means that understanding purifies our ability to care about the pain in the world. It's understanding that purifies empathetic joy, the third divine home. (coughs) So 
we want to open to the joy in the world, but then how do we do that without getting attached? And the fourth Brahma Vihara is Upeka, unconditional acceptance of how life is. And of course, it takes great understanding to accept how life is. We've talked a lot about loving kindness, and it's just to remember that it's really the ability to give and receive blessing. Compassion is what transforms our awareness of suffering into a care and skillful action rather than reacting to the pain in this world with anger, cruelty, fear, or pity. Empathetic joy, we deeply appreciate the beauty, you know, the vitality that joy gives us. Uh, But the understanding allows us uh, not to react to the joy in the world with attachment, jealousy, over-exuberance, or addiction. And then with equanimity, or upekka, this is this deep balance or composure in the face of the vast range of joy and sorrow that all beings meet on the planet. And it's this unconditional acceptance you know, that is very different than indifference or reacting to the pain uh, in this world or the joy in the world with anger and attachment. So if we think of the essence of the the four Brahma-viharas, it's really a very deep purity of heart that becomes pure through wisdom or understanding. If we get in touch with our deepest wishes for ourselves, if we, we get in touch with this deep or sweet, the sweetest aspiration, we can see that we take birth in the world and we so much want to care about the pain in this world. We, want, we really deeply want to alleviate it. And in the face of the joy in this world, we really want to appreciate it. This is a poem by Mary Oliver called Blue Iris. Now that I'm free to be myself, who am I? Can't fly, can't run, and see how slowly I walk. Well, I think I can read books. What's that you're doing? The green-headed fly shouts as it buzzes past. I close the book. Well, I can write down words like these softly. What's that you're doing, whispers the wind, pausing in a heap just outside the window. Give me a little time, I say back to it, staring silver face. It doesn't happen all of a sudden, you know. Doesn't it, says the wind, and breaks open releasing distillation of blue iris. And my heart panics, 
not to be as I long to be, the empty, waiting, pure, speechless receptacle. That's for all the blue iris outside and inside our hearts. So this uh, question of openness in this world of joy and sorrow and receptivity. So we said that sense that the wind blows in this poem, the flower breaks open and there's this distillation of blue iris. And the same thing is happening in our practice. It's like life flows along. And when we're very receptive, you know, if there's a receptive alert attention, the heart can open. You know, and we receive the loving kindness that's already present. You know, we receive the truth of understanding that's already present. It seems like a long time ago, I think it was 1973, um, some of the the friends I had at that time and um, the three children I was raising at the time and some of my family decided to move up to northern Maine from Massachusetts uh, and, you know, homestead and grow all our own food in northern Maine. Uh, <laughs> way up there, <laughs> where the growing season was like 40 days. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and none of us really had uh, experienced a country life. Uh, so we were quite naive about a zillion things. Um, and we got a cow. <laughs> and we all divided up the lab- labor, so I had bees, and you know somebody else had the ducks. And my poor friend Peter spent about eight years trying to build a chicken house. You know, he never quite manifested the, the chickens. <laughs> <laughs> but we had still all had faith that he might someday. <laughs> it was a good time, you know. Um, but there was a lot of difficult learnings, and one of them was with the cow, because, um, you know, we had the cow, and then we, um, she got pregnant, and we had all this milk. And, you know, this seemed good for a while, you know, until we just were making, I was making cottage cheese and cheese and quiche and we started giving the neighbors milk and then we made it butter and you know it was just getting we all gained 30 pounds you know (laughs) it was a Guernsey cow so you know we were getting really chubby and then her name was April and April had a baby and we called her Coco and then we, you know, we had her for a while, and we realized that we were over our heads and that we needed to, to get rid of the baby. Um, and it was a very hard decision. We all made the decision, and we finally gave her away. Her name was Coco, but we decided to wait for a year. <clears throat> and we finally gave her away, and her mom, April, that we were very close to, cried and cried 
and cried and cried. And it went, after, it went on day after day, week after week, and then month after month. And it was just so incredible for us. It was like we had no idea, you know, that this was going to be like this. And it went on for a year. You know, she just cried and cried and cried. And we were horrified, you know. It was just, it changed our complete, you know, relationship to the farm, you know. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm sharing this for a lot of reasons, but one is that we often have this idea that somehow, you know, we've been raised to think that maybe cows don't have feelings or that animals somehow don't have the same kind of relationship to their children. Um, but this, this isn't the case. Um, and that the Buddha did give this as an example for this first Brahma-vihara. You know, that the experience of loving-kindness is just the feeling of a mother cow just at that moment of giving birth to the baby and looking at this cow. But think of it as any parent. It's like, it's that moment when you give birth uh, and it's just that exuberance of wishing well. And you know, birth doesn't come easy. It's like it comes through a lot of difficulty. It's a great labor. Uh, so this newborn moment is loving kindness, and it's this purity of wish without attachment to result. This is unconditional love. You know, that no matter what happens to this being, you know, we know they'll face the joys and sorrows of life, but we still try to wish them well. So all beings who take birth in this world face mortality. We face impermanence. You know, and, and so how do we hold this poignancy, this aching poignancy of our hearts? You know, do we try to understand the fleetingness of existence. And when we face impermanence, I think we really get a sense of how precious life is, how precious it is, precious it is that we've just been able to incarnate. Someone asked me about, you know, what is really self-love? You know, what is it to wish ourselves well? Well, to me, it's really this place of holding the preciousness of our own hearts. And that we're not dependent on another, one, another being or another human to hold that preciousness for us. So we might yearn for that or long for that. We want so much for someone to connect with that preciousness of ourselves. And that, when that happens in life, that connection, it can be a great gift or grace, uh, but certainly it's something that is impermanent, not something that is permanent. You know, so that question of, well, how do we learn to do that? Um, I think that we don't always talk about the just kind of the essence of how that happens, but if you see a moment when you wish yourself well, you've taken a witnessing attention. You know, what is that witnessing attention? And where is it? And then we're connecting it with, you know, the body, heart, mind. It's like 
what we call me or I is, is just this part of the universe. And you're bringing this, this attention, <laughs> which we could call a, a witnessing attention, that we connect it with our own body, heart, mind. And when that really deep connection happens, there's just the heart of the universe there. You know, there isn't a sense of duality. There's a real sense of the, the giving witness energy and the receiving me energy. They come together, and there's just the heart. And when in that process you hear the sound of a bird and you feel the heart of the bird in that, you, you, you really care about the ant that you just stepped over and <laughs> just missed by the skin of your chinny chin chin. You know, it's kind of interesting, but you know, you just feel that utter connection. It's not an effort. You know that you're feeling the precious heart of the, of the whole universe, not just me or you. And it's the same process that happens when you shift to a dear friend or a benefactor or a difficult or all beings. How do you wish all beings well? You know, what kind of attention do you take to connect with what? You know, this is really fundamental. This is where you kind of get the sense of the distillation of the blue iris, uh, that you, you're, that, you're that receptive attention that can bring together that witnessing energy with someone else's heart, your own heart. And when that duality breaks down, there is no sense of your heart or my heart. And you wish that person well as you would wish yourself. Or if you have trouble with yourself, you know, you you find something, maybe a lake, as Susan said last night, or a teddy bear, or a flower, or someone who's shown us kindness. And we, if someone has shown us kindness, if we haven't received that kind of unconditional love from a parent, maybe we received it from a neighbor. But we learn it. We learn that sense of receiving that well-wishing. And if you felt it once, you can learn to do it for yourself. You can. I am a total you know, example. <laughs> <laughs> if I could wish myself well, I really feel like anybody in this universe can wish themselves well. It was really hard for me. It was really um, an edge. So loving kindness is a- about transforming our own heart. It's not about the result of the wish. And that's not always easy for us to accept (laughs) or remember. So ultimately, there's no giver, there's no receiver, there's just this pure well-wishing. And it feels wonderful. It's also very purifying. So if you have moments when you have felt that purity of love, it's going to lift conditional love. At some point, maybe a lot of anger will come up, or a lot of um, yearning for love. It can shift from that purity of love to suddenly wanting it in a few seconds. It's amazing. We, We hear the word dissociate a lot in our culture, and it's really 
the experience of not knowing what we know. It's not allowing ourselves to experience what's actually happening in the present moment. Uh, So we've been very conditioned to skip being attentive to difficult emotions, not acknowledging what we're feeling. And part of metta for ourselves, I think, is really being, becoming interested in aspects of ourselves that we didn't learn to be interested in. Uh, so on, on a retreat especially, you'll find the places in yourself that you resist um, experiencing, which when we resist experiencing something, it really just means that we're not willing to know what we know in that moment. We're not willing to experience the experience. So if anger comes up, we don't want to show up for it. It's that simple. So in that moment, we might think the practice is a good idea, yeah? (laughs) But in that moment, we really don't think the practice is a good idea. And it's only because we haven't learned the skill of being mindful, being present with that difficulty. And if something's really not easy for us, it's just that we haven't learned the skill, and it's going to take a lot of practice. And uh, some parts of our lives, you know, a lifetime can be spent learning something. That's okay. You know, that's partly why we're here in the human world. In the Buddhist uh, cosmology, humans are considered forth from the bottom. You know, from that, you know, we're... We're not considered super-evolved. So if you're having trouble with something, you know, it's really to remember that we're here to learn. Another aspect of um, the question around um, loving ourselves is really being able to know what we need and want, and to distinguish maybe from superficial needs and wants to really get in touch with what we really want and need, and and to connect with that. So I would say that we often learn on retreat that we really want more of a connection with ourselves. Yeah? It's often why we come back to retreat. We miss ourselves so much. You know, we get so busy, you know, really, just look at the loss of connection with ourselves that we experience uh, in, our, in our running around life. <laughs> you know, and when we see technically how that happens, it's really just that we don't allow enough space and time uh, to be with our own experience. We might give it and give it and give it, and there's all kinds of great reasons why we do it, um, but then if we overgive, if you remember that example of loving-kindness is filling yourself up like an empty glass with water with well-wishing, if you give it all out, what happens to you? You know, one just gets so caught up in so much stuff, <laughs> and it becomes so painful. So part of loving-kindness is starting to become aware of this process, and actually making steps in our daily life um, to repair that process, to make a little more space for the connection with ourselves. When we do that, we, c- we can connect in the way we want to connect with others. 
you see? So we're getting what we deeply need and want, maybe not so much what we act out on the surface of life because we aren't aware of these deeper needs and wants. So it's like being in touch with a spiritual need and want. Uh, And I think that a retreat is so wonderful to get in touch with that. So hopefully we start to recognize and value loving-kindness on a loving-kindness retreat. Uh, And we learn not to hate our neediness or our loneliness or our yearning, our longing, or to hate our hatred or to attack our own vulnerability or others. Uh, But we really learn to start bringing the mindfulness practice whenever we're getting overwhelmed by something like longing or, or neediness or aversion, that we can really bring metta to that. And then to really bring mindfulness to that um, and know that those experiences are okay. They're impermanent. They're not personal. They come and go like the breath or the wind. This is called The Cookie Thief by Valerie Cox. A woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man beside her as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She munched cookies and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. (laughs) She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she'd wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. (laughs) He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, Oh, brother, (laughs) this guy has some nerve, and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat, then sought her book, which was almost complete. As she reached into her baggage, she she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. (laughs) (laughs) If mine are here, she moaned with despair, (laughs) then the others were his 
and he tried to share. <laughs> Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. <laughs> Oh, life is humbling. We need a lot of self-forgiveness. You know, how much do we do that? Or how much do others do it to us? It's like, it's a lot of life. Accepting it not perfect, accepting it not perfect, and ourselves. We can't grow there. And if we're trying to have others ahead of themselves, they can't grow there, and there's so much suffering. I have a neighbor on the Big Island where uh, we have some land that's still in the process of being bought for a center on the Big Island in Hawaii. And this neighbor has grown up in this rural area of the Big Island of Hawaii for his life, and he's quite old. And I found, when I get to speak with him, that he's very interesting in terms of bringing understanding to love. Uh, Because when you live in a rural area, if you ever have, you know the kind of good guys and the bad guys kind of stick out a little more than in the city or the suburbs. And there was one man that was... um, we were talking about that is particularly difficult in the in the town, and this man is very quiet. Uh, the the neighbor that I'm talking about, but when somebody's talking about somebody difficult, I notice that he'll be quiet and then he'll just say, "I wonder why he does that." That's all he'll say. You know, it's just I wonder. He'll hear somebody else saying something, and I'll just notice he'll be very quiet and then he'll say. I wonder why she does that. You know, and it just changes the whole feeling or the quality of the conversation. Very simple, but it's just a question to remind you to say to ask yourself to understand the person. And hopefully we can learn to do that for ourselves. Compassion um, is orienting this openness, the receptive open heart toward the pain in the world. It really requires the willingness to touch pain. We can get very out of balance with this, so we can often be the type that can uh, not only touch the pain, but we tend to hold our nose and dive in and drown in it. Or we can be the type that really steps back so far that we don't even want to get near it. And both of those are not in balance. Uh, Compassion is the ability to just touch the pain in the world with care. And it's actually a wonderful feeling. So it's not to say that when we go into pain so far and we experience grief or sorrow or pity or cruelty, It's not to make those experiences wrong or bad, but it isn't this pure experience of just caring. Just as the Buddha taught that the 
the proximate cause of loving-kindness is noticing the goodness of a person, some aspect or quality of goodness. With compassion, he said it was um, tuning into the helplessness of another. It's tuning into the helplessness we feel in the face of suffering. And this is so interesting, because just think of the word helplessness in our culture. It's really not an acceptable thing. So to to know that that's the proximate cause of compassion, that we tune into helplessness in the face of suffering, you know, this is a little clue for ourselves, you know, that we need to be willing to touch into that helplessness in the face of suffering. It's almost like being willing to touch that, the vastness or the um, vulnerability of it. So this takes practice. Again, we often go too far in or we go too far back. And we know when, when it's pure, when it feels good to care for suffering. One of the aspects of this is that we can often get overwhelmed by helplessness, or it can feel too unbearable. But if we can learn to be mindful of that experience, allow it, uh, and connect with that experience, then we can connect with the pain. I've had a lot of opportunity in the last um, year or so to experience grief. There's been a lot of loss in my life. And one of the places that's been very interesting for me to explore is a place of missing. You know, what is missing someone? And I saw that if one really allows oneself to miss someone in the present moment, you're really not caught in the past. If you get caught in missing someone in the present moment, in the past, if you're in the past not noticing that you're missing someone in the present moment, you're caught. Do you see the difference? Okay. (laughs) Say you have a thought of somebody, like my sister died recently, and I have, say I have a thought of her when she was a young child and I was a young child. If I get caught in that thought and I'm back in the past and I'm thinking, 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 that's very different if I have the memory, the thought, and then bring my attention to my body and my heart in the present moment and go, oh, missing. And I actually am aware of the experience of missing in the present moment. They're very different. One is very pure and one is very caught. And this helped me so much to not push away the experience of grief, but to really let myself miss someone in the present and notice it come and go uh, and see that as the healing. There's a lot to say about um, compassion in relationship to grief or pity or even cruelty. One of the things that's so important when you, when you do go on a retreat is to see how cruel we can be to ourselves. 
Because sometimes when we talk about cruelty, it can seem like something very far away from us. Um, But the best way to tune into it is to listen to ourselves judging ourselves. You know, and then you kind of get, whoa. (laughs) Um, Wow, this is the root of cruelty in this world. And then we we can often hear the way we can be so judgmental of others. Uh, And the mindfulness practice, understanding that it's just thoughts, that it's just judgment, that we don't have to buy into it. You know, this is how the understanding intersects with compassion. If we see ourselves being cruel to ourselves in the present moment, we can stop it. We can say, I don't want to do this to myself anymore. And so at first it might seem like when you're on retreat some, for some time, it's like, oh, I thought I was a nice person, you know. <laughs> you know, we, we start to see how cruel the thoughts can be. But over time, you start seeing that you can genuinely be a nice person. You can genu- genuinely be kind to yourself and others because you're not caught in that deeper substratum of thought that can be so powerful. I had an experience with my sister's ashes this year that were really interesting. Um, She never made it to Hawaii. She lived in Pennsylvania. And I took a video of the land that I love so much on the Big Island. And I kind of went around different places uh, with, with this camera. And she saw it, and she picked a place where she wanted her ashes. So It happened for me in several trips um, to the Big Island, because I live in Honolulu on another island. And the first time I brought the ashes with me, I had a friend with me, and it turned out that um, we were in a hurry to do this. And it it isn't a good idea to be in a hurry with this, but here we were (laughs) in a hurry with these ashes. And I went to this cliff, which wasn't really where she wanted to do the ashes, but somebody was waiting for us, and we were late. And it was kind of this very strange um, kind of uh, experience. So I decided to do half of them, because I wanted to do some of them with a friend. And we were on this cliff where I had spent a lot of time uh, wishing her well before she died. And it was a very windy day. And we're at this cliff on the ocean. And we threw the ashes over, and they came all back. <laughs> they blew in our face. And I thought, oh, I bet she's liking this. You know, she, she had that kind of humor. And it, uh, it, was, it, was, it was light, and it felt good to share that experience. Um, and there was something very healing in that, to do that with a friend of mine. And then a couple of weeks later, I brought the rest of the ashes to where she wanted them uh, and brought them to this gulch and ocean there. Uh, and I, I had this lingering thought when, when I was putting the ashes in that, oh, most of my friends keep some of their you know, close relatives' ashes or friends' ashes. And I was like, well, maybe I'm supposed to keep a few of the ashes. So I let a lot of them, almost all of them go. And I felt like all the spirits in that area just were so happy. It was like everybody was celebrating. I can't describe to you the lightness and beauty of those moments for me. Um, so I had these little ashes, these little left that I decided to save. 
And I walked up to the cliff where I had um, shared having them go over with my friend. And I was like, do I keep do I keep them? It was like I was trying to keep a part of her, or do I do what these other people do, or do I do what I really feel? I, you know, that on a deeper level, what's authentic for me here? Uh, so really, it felt like I needed to let them go. Uh, so I just let them go. And it's pretty amazing to even share with you what happened. All these monarch butterflies started to come up from the cliff, like just one came up, and then another came up, and another, maybe 10 or 11. Um, And I had such a sense, I mean, the butterflies were really a metaphor, but just of the freedom possible for all of us when we really deeply let go, that genuinely. It was like, it was like all the karma with her just felt like it just faded away. All the, you know, we had a difficult, uh, difficult karma. Um, and it was so, such a teaching for me over and over again. It's just that when there's that deep, genuine letting go, how we feel so utterly connected and so free. But no one can tell us when to let go. And I think that that's really important. Um, that we all have our own process with um, understanding immortality. There's a great poem by Mary Oliver called On Losing a House. Uh, But part of it, she says, don't tell us how to love, don't tell us how to grieve or what to grieve for or how loss shouldn't sit down like a gray bundle of dust in the deepest pockets of our energy. Don't laugh at our belief that money isn't everything. Don't tell us how to behave in anger, in longing, in loss, in homesickness. Don't tell us, dear friends. So part of compassion or care for ourselves and others is really letting them go through what they go through in the process of life and its unfolding of joy and sorrow, birth and death and life. The willingness um, to just be there is the greatest gift you can give with, with someone or yourself with pain. Not trying to get rid of it, just being with it. The next Brahma Vihara and the next one I'm going to go uh, just touch on very briefly, but they're, they're important to hold in this and that you're establishing this openness of heart and then you're touching the pain in the world with this pleasant care. And then the next one is great fun. You're appreciating the joy in the world, the beauty in the world. Uh, and seeing if you can not shut down to the pain, not shut down to the beauty, but if you open, you open to pain, you open to joy. Uh, so the, the phrase is really just, I appreciate the joy in my life. 
or I appreciate the joy um, in your life. This afternoon, um, you know, my father is having some difficulty. Uh, he has to have an operation next week, and I've been spending a lot of time with doctors, nurses, my sister, and trying to arrange everything uh, for him. Uh, and it was, you know, I felt my head kind of getting a little tight and my heart getting a little tight. Uh, so I decided to go for a little walk before uh, working on my talk tonight. And I stepped out just about on my step as I walked out of the cottage I'm staying in, and there was this beautiful yellow bird that just dipped in and was drinking water out of this puddle. And it was so simple, but so beautiful. It's like, that brings me so much joy. And then I kind of walked a little more, and this rabbit, little bunny, kind of ran in front of me. And I think you all know how important these moments are, important to value them, important to recognize uh, that it's the simplicity of the connection that we have with other beings in nature or with ourselves that brings about joy. It's not complicated, but we have to take the time for it. If we're busy, we miss it. And you know when we're hurrying, or when we're dissatisfied, it's like if we think the moment isn't good enough, or if we're really caught up, we don't see the bird, <laughs> you know, we don't see the rabbit. Or if we do, it's like, <laughs> sorry, I'm <laughs> in a hurry, I'm running by you. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, that's when we can get all caught up in jealousy and in gratitude and not caring, because we haven't, again, we don't have the time to make space for these moments of connection. So if, if you don't know a lot about this third uh, Brahma-vihara, empathetic joy, I would recommend trying to taste it a little bit, you know, in the next months, you know, bring it in a little bit into your practice. Uh, it requires being able to receive a moment. You know, so again, there's this emphasis on receptivity. You receive um, seeing a chipmunk. You know, you might, you see when you're on a retreat here and you have a cup of tea and you're just sitting outside or you're walking outside. I can guarantee that I know that each one of you have had some very powerful experiences during this retreat of joy. It might be with a butterfly or an ant, but you've had the time to connect. And so when I say we miss ourselves a lot in life, but we also miss these connections. Joy is so important. In fact, the Buddha taught that joy is the gateway to enlightenment. It's that important. So when we're getting caught in that, you know, our practice isn't good enough, this retreat isn't good enough, others aren't good enough, uh, this leads to jealousy and worthlessness and ingratitude. Uh, and it's not, again, it's not to say that those moments aren't really important to be mindful of and, and to go through. We go through them, we learn to open to them, not avoid them. Uh, but it's also to remember we can recognize and value um, these simple moments of connection and to make space for them in our life.
I have a friend that um, was very sick this winter. He has AIDS, and um, he spent 20 years having the most strict diet of anyone I know. I mean, he wasn't getting any pleasure out of that food, I can tell you that. You know, it was like really, um, you know, no sugar, no yeast, no this, no that, no this, no that. And, um, you know, I think it was really important that he did that, but he had such a brush with death this winter uh, that I didn't know he was going to do this, but I, he invited me over for tea, you know, and if this was after he had started to get better. And I mean, this was a shock. I walk into his place, and um, there's a cookbook by Julia Child on desserts, you know, a big, thick one. And I'm already going, whoa, you know, this is, this is not your vegan, 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 you know, nothing in the food thing. Um, nothing but, you know, sprouts or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, and so he has this baking pan out, and he, it's like this white flour, yeasted, big scone thing, and it's like, in the moment I walk in, he's got a big pan of melted butter. I mean, huge. And he's pouring it over this white flour yeasted thing, and then he pulls out a whole box of brown sugar and pours it on. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? And he's like, I believe in delight and fun now, you know. And <laughs> I'm like, okay. And that's what we had for supper. <laughs> And I can take a lot, but even I was like, whoa, you know. <laughs> he sure has changed. Um, and I talked with him yesterday, and it's into a chocolate bar a day, you know. Uh, and I know myself, for example, uh, I was put on this diet this winter, a kind of boring diet for two months, really boring. No sugar, no this, no that. And, I think my naturopath was really hoping that I'd kind of understand something about maybe wanting less sugar. This was her deep desire. She didn't tell me that that was her goal. You know, so after two months, and you know, I really tried, but I cheated every day. But I tried <laughs> really hard, and I confessed. I didn't hide that I cheated every day. I went in, and she said, um, well, Michelle, have you noticed any difference, you know, with that real hope in her voice? And I said, no. And I said, when I have sugar, I'm really happy. <laughs> I mean, I said, I know it's a, a, a conditional kind of happiness, um, but it's, I have changed. I'm, I don't have as much of it, and I appreciate it. Um, so she did help me cut the um, near enemy of empathetic joy, which is um, attached joy, you know, and you can see where we get that addiction. We don't notice the enjoyment, we're not mindful of the enjoyment, we get too attached, and we suffer. So the last Brahma-vihara is uh, upeka, or equanimity. And I just want to mention one or two things about it, uh, and I alluded to it this morning in the instructions. Um, in the spiritual world, uh, we emphasize so much acceptance, and this has a lot to do with loving-kindness, non-judgmental attention, accepting things as they are, 
Equanimity is unconditional acceptance. And it's where we really stop fighting with life and struggling, controlling, manipulating, all that, all the pain and suffering of controlling versus letting life be. You know, this is where peace, when we say may you be happy and peaceful of heart, this is the deeper kind of happiness. This is peace. Uh, But the mistake we often make is that it doesn't mean passivity. Uh, and the experience that can seem so much like equanimity but isn't is, is indifference. And it's when we pretend that things are okay. We're so good at hiding how we feel, as I was saying earlier. So that denial, passivity, indifference, the heart isn't connected. We actually aren't, aren't showing up, but we pretend that we're okay. Uh, And that isn't unconditional acceptance. So it's not that we don't learn to become mindful of indifference and let ourselves close down. Certainly, like a flower, the heart needs to open and close. And we close, the heart closes when we don't have mindfulness and loving-kindness. If we're protected by mindfulness, loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, or, or equanimity, we don't need to be shut down. You know, so it's a, a very gradual, the practice is a good idea, and we gradually, we gradually learn the skill of being an open, receptive, protected human being, protected spiritually by loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity, and this, the power of presence of this non-judgmental attention, mindfulness. So equanimity doesn't mean that we're condoning behavior by ourselves or others that's harmful. It just means that we're accepting that it happened or it's happening. And out of that deep acceptance, we take action. Sometimes we take action that can be very fierce. Uh, Sometimes it's very gentle, but it's coming out of a deep, pure place. Sometimes we tell stories of um, people getting enlightened, and it often seems very far away from us, uh, or that it's something that that might happen, have happened 2,500 years ago and not now. And I think it's really important to remember that um, the moments where we we have some loving-kindness, or we have some mindfulness, are moments of awakening. And they're to be recognized, valued, and really treasured. Really treasured. And to know that, you know, people are doing it, and that we can do it. There's a woman in um, California that sat a retreat I taught two years ago, that has a motor neuron disease, and she didn't have it when I first met her. And then a year ago at a retreat, she was in a wheelchair and was really deteriorating. And I talked with her about it, and she, she was working really well with the practice with this disease. Um, 
And she was very inspiring for everyone at the retreat. And she talked about working with fear and being mindful of it. And she described how she could see each moment that if she just stayed in the present moment with the fear, she'd be okay. But if she projected the fear into the future, she wasn't okay. And she was really doing it. It was like we were all so inspired by her, but she still had a lot of fear coming up. And this year, the, the retreat I just taught, she couldn't come to the retreat. Uh, she's, she's too ill. But we called her, and she came for a talk, and then I talked with her afterwards. And her doctor said she has three months to live. And she's great. I mean, you know, she is, the fear's gone. And I talked with her about it. I know it's totally genuine. She's just really free. You know, she just applied the mindfulness so much, you know, in terms of noticing that projection into the future and knowing in the present moment she was okay. And knowing she was okay and knowing she was okay. And I said, well, how, you know, the doctor said, you have three months to live. What, what do you, how do you feel about it? And she says, I know I'm just going home and I'm fine. You know, and, and that two, two or three years ago, you would have never thought the person next to you in the hall would be that free. You know, that's just one of us and one of you and me. And she, all she did was apply the mindfulness and the loving-kindness. So please don't think it's far away from you. And at every moment that you remember to connect right now with a loving-kindness, you're there. You're not in the past, not in the future. So please keep going with your practice. Let's sit for a minute. So please take your practice seriously. Keep going with your practice. Hold, hold the power of this retreat for yourself. Protect it and protect others. May we be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.